0: Chapter 6 of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. John Dean of Toronto, a Comedy of Whitehall, by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter 6 Mr. Montague Naylor of Streatham. Whilst John Deane was preparing interminable lists for the victualling and stores departments of the Admiralty, Department Z was making discreet and searching inquiries regarding Mr. Montague Naylor of Streatham. Among other things, it discovered that he was essentially English. The atrocities in Belgium and northern France rendered him almost speechless with indignation, wherever he went and to whomsoever he met he proclaimed the german an enemy of civilization it was his one topic of conversation and in time his friends and acquaintance came to regard the word hun as a danger signal mr naylor had arrived at streatham toward the end of 1909 coming from no one knew whither but according to his own account from norwich he was of independent means without encumbrances beyond a wife a deaf servant registered as a swiss and a particularly fierce dispositioned chow an animal that caused marked irregularity in the delivery of his milk newspapers and letters sometimes the animal chose to resent the approach of all comers and after the postman had lost a portion of his right trouser leg he had decided that whatever might happen to his majesty's mails the postman's calf was sacred therefore he never delivered letters when james was at large without participating in the postman's mishap the paper boy and milkman had adopted his tactics the dustman point blank refused to touch the refuse from the cedars unless it were placed on the pavement and the gate securely closed sometimes the readings of the electric and gas meters were formally noted by officials whose uniform began and ended with their caps, sometimes they were not. Everything depended upon the geographical position of James at the moment of the inspector's call. The baker who supplied Mr. Naylor had, as a result of a complaint from his man, made a personal call of protest, but he had succeeded only in losing his temper to Mr. Naylor and the seat of his trousers to James. Thenceforth, the cedars, had to seek its bread elsewhere. Incidentally, the master baker obtained a new pair of trousers at Mr. Naylor's expense. Why Mr. Naylor continued to keep James was a puzzle to all the neighbors, who, knowing him as a champion of the rights of man, votes for women, the smaller nations, and many other equally uncomfortable things, were greatly surprised that he should keep a dog that was clearly of a savage and dangerous disposition about mr naylor himself there was nothing of the ferocity of his dog he was suave with a somewhat deprecating manner a ready almost automatic smile in which his eyes never seemed to join a sallow complexion large round glasses a big nose and ugly teeth he had a thick voice thick ears and a thick skin when it so served his purpose His love for England was almost alien, and he was never tired of motoring from one part of the country to another, that is, before the war. His car had been something unique, as in a few seconds it could be turned into a moderately comfortable sleeping apartment. Thus he was independent of hotels or lodgings. Mrs. Naylor was a woman of negative personality. She looked after the house, fed James, and never asked questions of Mr. Naylor, thus justifying her existence. Susan, the maid, was also negative, from her stupid, round, moist face to the shapeless feet that she never seemed to be able to lift from the floor. She had acquired great dexterity in shuffling out of the way just before Mr. Naylor appeared. This she seems to have reduced to a fine art. If Mr. Naylor were going upstairs and Susan was about to descend, by the time he was halfway up she would have disappeared as effectively as if snatched away by some spirit agency. Susan was dumb, but her sense of sound was extremely acute. It seemed as if, conscious of her inability to hold her own verbally with her employer, she had fallen back upon the one alternative—disappearance the Naylors were possessed of few friends although mr Naylor had many acquaintances the result of the way in which he had identified himself with local clubs and institutions it was largely due to him that the miniature rifle range had been started he was one of the governors of the cranberry cottage hospital he also subscribed to the annual territorial sports patronized the boy scouts openly advocated conscription and the two-power standard for the navy. There were times when Streatham found it almost embarrassing to be possessed of a patriot in its midst. Never had a breath of scandal tarnished the fair name of Mr. Montague Naylor? He was what a citizen should be, and seldom is. When war broke out, his activities became almost bewildering. He joined innumerable committees, helped to form the volunteers, and encouraged every one and everything that was likely to make things uncomfortable for the enemy. Later, he became a member of the local exemption tribunal and earned fame by virtue of his clemency. It was he who was instrumental in obtaining exemption for some of James's most implacable enemies. The baker, who had lost the whole of his temper and a portion of his trousers, probably owed his life to the manner in which mr naylor championed his claim that bread is mightier than the sword before the war the naylors received twice each month once their friends and once their relatives never were the two allowed to meet our friends we make ourselves our relatives are given to us mr naylor had explained with ponderous humor i hate to mix the two it was noticed that the relatives stayed much longer than the friends and some commiseration was felt for the nailers by their immediate neighbours there had been one curious circumstance in connection with these social functions whenever the friends were invited james was always in the front garden restrained by a chain that allowed of the guests carrying their calves into the hall with an eighteen-inch margin of safety When, however, it was the turn of the relatives to seek the hospitality of the cedars, James was never visible. A cynic might have construed this into indicating that from his relatives Mr. Naylor had expectations. Within his own home Mr. Naylor was a changed man. He ruled Mrs. Naylor, Susan, and James with an iron hand. They all fawned upon him, vainly inviting the smiles that when others were present seemed never to fail in the mechanical precision with which they illuminated his features at appropriate moments. They gave the impression of being turned on as if controlled by a tap or switch. Never was this smile seen once the hall door was passed. Then Mr. Naylor's jaw squared, and his whole attitude seemed to become more angular a knock at the door would cause him to look up quickly from whatever he was doing just as a gamekeeper might look up at the report of a gun by his orders mrs naylor and susan between them kept a complete list of all callers even hawkers if they were sufficiently courageous to risk an encounter with the redoubtable james mr naylor was a tall man of broad build with a head that would persist in remaining square in spite of his best endeavours to grow the hair upon it in such a way as to soften its angularity his eyes were steely his forehead low his mouth hard and his manner furtive that was within doors the breath of heaven however seemed to mitigate all these unamiable characteristics and it was only on very rare occasions that, once beyond his own threshold, an observer would see the harshness of the man. He smiled down at children, sometimes he patted their heads. He was never lacking in a tip, appropriate or inappropriate. He was the smoother out of discordant situations. He nodded to all the tradespeople, smiled genially at his inferiors, and saluted his superiors and equals. In short, he was an ideal citizen the outbreak of war in august 1914 was responsible for two changes in the Naylor menage first the at-home days were discontinued secondly James was more than ever in evidence nobody however noticed the changes because in Streatham such things were not considered worthy of notice Mr Naylor received few letters for which the postman was grateful to Providence had Streatham been a little more curious, it would have noticed that Mr. Naylor's comings and goings were fraught with some curious and interesting characteristics. For one thing, he appeared constitutionally unable to proceed direct to a given point. For instance, if Hempstead were his object, he would in all probability go to Charing Cross, take a bus along Strand, the tube to Piccadilly Circus, a taxi to Leicester Square, tube to Golders Green, and bus to Hampstead. Another curious circumstance connected with Mr. Naylor was the number of people who seemed to stop him to inquire their way, obviously people who found it difficult to pronounce the names and addresses of those they sought, for they invariably held in their hands pieces of paper, which Mr. Naylor would read and then proceed to direct them. This would occur in all parts of London to the casual observer interested in the details of mr naylor's life it would have appeared that london waited for his approach and then incontinently made a bee-line for him to inquire its way with smiling geniality mr naylor would read the paper offered to him make one or two remarks then with a wave of his hand and a further genial smile proceed on his way his courtesy was almost continental He would take great pains to direct the inquirer, sometimes even proceeding part of the way with him to ensure that he should not go astray. Since the war, Mr. Naylor had patriotically given up his car, handing it over to the Red Cross, and receiving from the local secretary a letter of very genuine thanks and appreciation. There had also been a paragraph in the Streatham Herald notifying this splendid act of citizenship. In nothing was Mr. Naylor's sense of his Christian charity so manifest as in the patience with which he answered the number of false rings he received on the telephone. It was extraordinary the way in which wrong numbers seemed to be put through to him, yet his courtesy never forsook him. His reply was always the same, "No, I am Mr. Montague Naylor of Streatham.' It frequently happened that shortly after such a call Mr. Naylor would go out when James would be left in the front garden. Mrs. Naylor had particular instructions always to make a note of any rings that came on the telephone during Mr. Naylor's absence, no matter whether they were for him or for anyone else. She was to take down every word that was said, and always say in response that the subscriber was on to Mr. Naylor of Streatham. One morning, whilst John Dene was giving down letters to Dorothy in his customary jerky manner, Mr. Naylor sat at breakfast, his attention equally divided between the meal and the morning paper. Opposite sat Mrs. Naylor, watching him as a dog watches a master of uncertain temper. She was a little woman with a colorless face, from which sparse gray hair was drawn with Puritan severity. In her weak blue eyes was fear fear of her lord and master and in her manner deprecation and apology the only sound to be heard were the champing of mr naylor's jaws and the occasional rustle of the newspaper mr naylor was a hearty eater and an omnivorous reader of newspapers in the front garden james gave occasional tongue protesting against the existence of some passer-by after a particularly vigorous bout of barking on James's part, Mr. Naylor looked up suddenly and, fixing Mrs. Naylor with a stern eye, demanded, "Any post? I haven't heard the postwoman yet faltered Mrs. Naylor apologetically. She was at heart a pacifist in the domestic sense. God see." was the gruff retort, as Mr. Naylor thrust into his mouth a large piece of bread, which he had previously wiped round his plate to absorb the elemental juices of the morning bacon. Mrs. Naylor rose meekly and left the room. A few moments later she returned, carrying in her hand two envelopes. Mr. Naylor looked up over his spectacles. "'They were on the path,' she exclaimed timidly. "'James is in the garden.' the postwoman had tacitly carried on the tradition of her predecessor the postman if james were about the letters were over the garden gate if james were not about they went into the letter box. with a grunt mr naylor snatched the letters from mrs naylor's hand and looked at them keenly one bore a halfpenny stamp and was consequently of no particular importance this he laid beside his plate The other however he subjected to a rigorous and elaborate examination he scrutinized the handwriting examined carefully the postmark turned it over and gazed at the fastening then taking a letter opener from his pocket he slowly slit the top of the envelope and taking out a sheet of note-paper unfolded it he bit off the phrase savagely and looked up fiercely at mrs naylor as if she was responsible for his lapse instinctively she shrank back from the garden james's vigorous barking swelled into a fortissimo of protest stop that dog he shouted whereat mrs naylor rose and left the room with scowling eyebrows mr naylor read his letter and ground his teeth with suppressed fury The man muss sein. He reread the letter, then placing it in his pocket, looked across the table, seeming for the first time to notice that Mrs. Naylor had left the room. Going to the door he opened it and shouted a peremptory here. As Mrs. Naylor entered with obvious trepidation, he fixed her with a stern, disapproving eye. There's somebody coming this afternoon at four, he said. I'll see him in the study and with that he once more drew the letter from his pocket and read it for the third time, whilst Mrs. Naylor withdrew. The letter, which was typewritten, even to the signature, ran, Dear Mr. Naylor, I hope to call upon you on Thursday afternoon at four o'clock. I regret that unforeseen circumstances have prevented me from giving myself this pleasure before. Yours very truly, J. Van Helder. With a grumble in his throat, Mr. Naylor walked out of the dining room across the hall and into his study. Closing and locking the door, he went over to his writing table and seemed to collapse into, rather than sit on, the chair. He was oblivious to everything except the scrap of paper before him. The cloud upon his brow seemed to intensify. His face became more cruel. The Mr. Naylor of Streatham, Patriot, philanthropist and good citizen, had vanished, giving place to a man in whose heart was anger and fear. At the end of five minutes he drew toward him a small metal tray. Taking a match from a stand, he struck it, and deliberately setting light to the paper, held it while it burned. When the flame seared his fingers, he placed the hole upon the metal dish, scowling at the paper as it writhed and crackled in its death agony. He then proceeded to burn the envelope, When both were reduced to twisted shapes of carbon, he opened a drawer, took from it a duster, and pressed it down upon the metal plate, reducing the contents to black powder. Picking up the tray, he carried it over to the grate, emptied the powder into the fireplace, wiped the tray, and placed it upon the table, thrusting the duster back into the drawer. He then sank once more into his chair, conscious that the morning had begun ill. Ten minutes later he rose, unlocked the door, and went out into the hall. He took his hat from the stand and brushed it carefully. Picking up his gloves and umbrella, he gave a final look round. Then, composing his features for the outside world, he opened the door and passed out into Apthorpe Road. For such of his neighbors, as he encountered, he had a cheery word, a lifting of his hat or a wave of his hand housewives would sigh enviously as they saw mr naylor pass genially on his way he was always the same they told themselves remembering with a little pang the vagaries of their own husbands before his return to the cedars for lunch mr naylor with unaccustomed emphasis foretold the doom of the government unless it immediately rushed a measure through parliament for the internment of all aliens He was nothing, if not thorough. End of chapter 6